There are some people who think they are saved. What they need more than anything else is to understand that they're not saved so that they can actually be saved. Welcome to A Better Word with Dr. Nick Gatsky, Senior Pastor of Old North Church in Canfield, Ohio. I'm your host, Brian Dolan. Today, Pastor Nick takes us through more of our sermon series called Perfect Power in Our Weakness as we go through the book of 2 Corinthians. Today's message, as we examine chapter 13, is testing yourself. Hmm, Pastor, testing yourself. Uh, What are we testing ourselves for here? Intelligence? Character? There are a lot of things that we should test ourselves for, but Paul says in verse 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. And that's a really curious phrase, isn't it? Yeah, it feels almost intimidating, like, am I really a Christian? And that's what he is calling us to ask of ourselves. And how do we know if we're really a Christian? Because there are plenty of people in this world who have some kind of general affinity to Jesus. Maybe they grew up in the church. Maybe they view him as a good moral teacher. But there's a difference between having an affinity to Jesus and having genuine faith in him. And that's where we're to test ourselves. I'm guessing that's where today's message takes us. Indeed it does. Well, let's get right to it then. Here is part one of a message from Pastor Nick Gatsky called Testing Yourself. Elway was a duck. Elway was a duck who thought that he was a dog. His owner adopted him from an animal rescue organization. And when she brought Elway home, her six other dogs greeted him with tails wagging and tongues licking. His owner, Lindsay, had other ducks, but Elway, for some reason, took to the dogs. He would follow the dogs around. He would blend into the pack as much as a duck could. He would fly up onto the couch and nap with the dogs. And when mealtime came, he went to the place where the dog food was served. Elway didn't really know what he was. He thought he was a dog, but in all actuality, he was a duck. Now, we've all heard animal stories like that, and it illustrates a variety of things, including the power that we have to influence each other and to form identity in each other. And in this instance, you don't really see any harm in it. It's sort of cute to think about ducks walking around with dogs and everybody getting along in the way that they do. It makes for a fun story. But you know, that's not always the case. Sometimes when someone is confused about what they are, it might look okay for a while, but the results could be tragic. Take the story of Elway. That would never actually occur in the wild because a duck hanging out with wild dogs wouldn't last the winter without flying south. Or a duck who thought he was a wild dog would probably end up as the wild dog's dinner. In truth, when someone thinks they're something they're not or possess something that they don't, the results are far more often dangerous than encouraging. This is true for animals. This is true for humans. This is true in the physical realm, and this is true in the spiritual realm. One of the hardest things about Christian ministry is the need at times to convince someone who wrongly believes that they are a Christian. 
to convince them that they're actually not so that they can become a Christian. It's one of those uncomfortable realities that we don't really like to talk about all that often. There are some people who think they are saved. They think they're following Christ. They think they are in line to receive the benefits of God. But in reality, what they need more than anything else is to understand that they're not saved so that they can actually be saved. Paul is dealing with some such people in the church in Corinth. And as he moves toward the end of the letter, he is engaging them. He's engaging those who have opposed him. He's engaging those who are caught in the middle. He's engaging the church at large and he's engaging us. And he is doing so. He's preparing for a visit for the third time to this particular church. And he's providing another opportunity for them to repent from the sin that they continue to live in so that when he comes, they can keep pressing forward together instead of in opposition to each other. He gives them a warning. And we see the warning in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 to 10. So follow with me. Starting at verse 1, it says this. Paul writes, this is the third time that I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test, but we pray to God that you may not do wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only what is for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason... I write these things while I am away from you that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of authority that the Lord has given me for the building up and not for tearing down. In verses one through four, Paul threatens discipline to them when he comes for a third time. He warns those, he says, who had sinned before and all others, and he warns them now while absent. The sin that he's talking about here is not the sin struggles that are common to humanity, the sin that you and I struggle with even on a daily basis. He's not talking about that type of sin. He is talking about particular ongoing unrepentant sin in the life of this church that constitutes a rebellion against the apostle and against the Lord Jesus himself. And so he says to them that when I come again, I will not spare them. Those are some strong words against those who rebel. And he 
engages with them again in this theme that he's been working through throughout the whole book, how power and weakness and that dynamic functions in the kingdom of God. We've talked about that at great length over the last number of months because Paul talks about it again and again and again. Remember, for the Corinthians, the only way that they would authenticate the message of this apostle was if they saw prosperity and power in him and his own physical weakness and the fact that he had been persecuted was the reason why they were rejecting him. And in doing so, they were also rejecting Christ who came in physical weakness. You see, the Corinthians viewed power and prosperity and triumph and health as all interconnected in their nature. But their understanding was due to the fact that they were constantly importing the values of their culture into the church. Their understanding of true power was not Christian in nature. It was Corinthian in nature. And so Paul moves to correct their understanding And he applies the principle of Jesus to himself. And he does so when he says this. He says, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. So we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. That is to say this, that Jesus's appearance of weakness in this life The fact that he was persecuted, the fact that he was beaten, the fact that he was crucified, all things that would make you say he was weak are actually evidences of God's power. And then his resurrection further elaborating on that understanding of power because only God would be strong enough to endure the weakness of the cross. Only God would be strong enough to endure the beatings and the hanging on that cross and the death that ensued. And then only God would be powerful enough to be risen from the dead, which magnifies the power all the more. Paul then applies that to himself and says, even though I've been persecuted and have been weak among you, when I come to exercise discipline, I will come in strength, just as the Lord Jesus displays his strength the resurrection. This is a warning. These are stern words and nobody likes to be sternly warned. The call is to repent. And this call is made even clearer in verses five through seven. So look at it with me. He says this, he says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? To examine yourself in the faith or to test yourself to see if Jesus is in you is the call to the Corinthians. And this, of course, implies that you could think you have been in the faith, but you've been wrong. And that's a sobering thought. False assurance is a scary place to be. Perhaps you've heard the story of the lost tourist. Just in the last couple of years, a 49-year-old German brewery worker named Erwin Kreutz blew his life savings on a -a once-in-a-lifetime birthday trip to San Francisco. 
He'd seen it on TV and he wanted to visit the Wild West. And as the flight from Frankfurt, Germany stopped to refuel in Bangor, Maine, before continuing on to California, an airline stewardess who had finished her shift and was departing the aircraft told Kreutz, have a nice time in San Francisco. And her choice of words would change the trajectory of his next coming days because Kreutz, who typically enjoyed drinking 17 beers a day, was a little groggy after the long flight. And upon hearing this, he thought that was the indication that they had arrived in San Francisco. And so he got off the plane, he jumped into a cab, and he asked the driver to take him into the city. The cab driver dropped Kreutz off at a hotel in downtown Bangor, Maine, and he found a tavern to quench his almighty thirst. He wandered Bangor for three days, enjoying the sights and sounds that Maine had to offer. And unfortunately, Kreutz still thought he was in San Francisco. He was so certain he was in San Francisco that he didn't stop believing for those three strange days. At one point, he was reassured by the sight of two Chinese restaurants, which he knew were in San Francisco because he had seen on the television. And after much wandering, he decided that he must be in a Bay Area suburb. And so he hailed a taxi cab and asked to be brought to downtown San Francisco. The taxi driver thought he was crazy and sped away. And so he made his way back to the tavern. And in the tavern, he sought help from one of the waitresses, but the language barrier was too difficult to overcome. So she called her friend Gertrude Romine, who spoke German. Romine and her family took Kreutz into their home and word spread of the lost tourist. First, to the Bangor Daily News, and then to the national news, and then even around the world. And upon hearing the story, the San Francisco examiner paid for Kreutz to fly to his initial destination, where he was treated like visiting dignitary for his four remaining days before he returned home to work in the brewery in Germany. The lost tourist had finally made it to his destination. You know, it's a sad state of affairs to not know where you are or where you're going. It's a pathetic reality for a lost tourist in Maine to think he's in California. And it's an even more dangerous reality if you function as a lost tourist as you go through your life because false assurance can be a dangerous thing. And the fact that some people have false assurance of their faith doesn't necessarily imply sinister motives, though it could. You could be in knowing rebellion against God and still think that you're okay with God, or you could be sincerely wrong about something and have no sinister motive attached to it. And today in our culture, we have this dynamic where there's a squishiness all around truth and sincerity has been elevated almost to the level of importance as actual fact or truth. And so someone might say something like, it doesn't really matter what you believe or what you do, just as long as you do it with good intentions. 
just as long as you engage it with sincerity, God will most surely look kindly upon you and honor those intentions, even if they're wrong in their execution. But friends, that's not the way that God works. Jesus says as much to a bunch of sincere people in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 and on. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And so what are we to do so that we don't find ourselves in the same position? Where can you find good assurance and solid confidence that you are in the faith, that Jesus is in you? as Paul says. Well, he tells us to examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. And then he states it another way, test to see if Jesus is in you. And that begs the question, how do we examine ourselves? It's interesting to notice that here in Chapter 13, Paul doesn't really tell us precisely how to examine ourselves or what to examine ourselves against. But it seems as if what he is saying to the Corinthians would apply to us, that the standard by which they are examining genuine faith against is the reception of the apostle and his teaching himself. If you accept the teachings of the apostles, this is an indication that you are in the faith. If you reject Paul and his message, then it is an indication that Jesus isn't in you. And so what is that teaching? What do we see more broadly? Because certainly we see throughout the New Testament a number of ways that we can try to validate whether or not our faith is genuine or whether or not it's just feigned in its nature. And I can think of at least four that are worth at least brief consideration. Throughout the whole New Testament, we see that there is a standard of examination with regard to belief, don't we? Certain things that we believe. In fact, Jesus points again and again and again to a regular invitation through the Gospel of John, and that invitation is very simply, believe in me. (laughs) Believe in me. Believe that I am the Son of God. Believe that I'm the one who takes away the sins of the world. Believe that I am God here on earth. Believe upon the Lord Jesus and be saved. Paul indicates the same in the book of 1 Corinthians, the first letter to this church. In chapter 15, he talks about a very specific belief, which is the evaluation of your salvation. He says in chapter 15, verse 1, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed it in vain. This gospel, 
received, in which you stand, by which you're being saved. Unless you believed in vain, which means unless you didn't truly believe it. (laughs) Belief is the standard. He says, I delivered to you of first importance of that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Then he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. So what is the standard by which we examine ourselves? Well, the first one is very obviously and clearly belief. The second one, I think, is what we might say is associated with belief, and that is what we could call disposition. What is your disposition toward God, especially as it relates to your sin? There seems to be a disposition toward sin, which often accompanies genuine belief. Whether that's in Acts chapter 2, when the Jews who learn that Jesus is truly the Christ, the Son of God, says they are cut to the heart and they cry out, what must we do to be saved? That's a disposition of sorrow for their sin and a desire for God. Or 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul writes in verse 10, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret whereas worldly grief produces death. Godly grief, feeling grief about the sins that you have committed toward God. That's a disposition. Sometimes people have the opposite disposition with regard to their sin when they feel conviction. I think of the well-known professional golfer who was playing in a tournament a number of years ago with President Gerald Ford, fellow professional golfer Jack Nicholas, and the evangelist Billy Graham. And at the conclusion of the round, one of the other pros on tour asked, hey, what was it like to play with President Ford and with Billy Graham? And the other pro said with disgust, I don't need Billy Graham ramming his religious stuff down my throat. He stormed off to the practice tee. And his friend followed him. And after he gave his colleague some time to pound out his fury on a bucket of golf balls, he said, was old Billy pretty hard on you out there in the golf course today? And the professional golfer said with embarrassment, no, he didn't even mention religion. So Billy Graham said nothing about God, nothing about Jesus, nothing about religion. And this professional golfer walked away accusing him of trying to ram religion down his throat. Why did he feel that way? My guess? Because he was feeling conviction of sin. And instead of responding in grief toward God, he responded in pride and self-justification. But friends, genuine repentance, if you're really in the faith, has a disposition of grief for your sin toward God. And so the question is just simply this, do you feel sorry for the sins that you've committed against God? Do you? Godly grief produces repentance, which leads to salvation. And so test yourself to see in your faith, what are your beliefs? Do they align with the beliefs that are from the apostles, in the word, not just what you think or feel or want the word to say, but what it actually says. And then what is your disposition toward God with regard to sin? A couple other ways to test yourself. 
Thirdly is, of course, action, that we are people who don't just profess an intellectual idea or a historical fact, but that actually leads to a change of life. You see this again and again and again throughout the scriptures. John says it well in 1 John 3, 18, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. And then lastly, I would say affection, belief, disposition, your actions in this life, your life follows your belief. And then there's an affection, a desire, a spiritual desires. Someone says to me, I don't know if my my brother's a Christian. And my first question is almost always, do they have any spiritual desires or not? Peter says it in 1 Peter chapter 2, like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk, by it you may grow up into salvation. If you've truly tasted how great God is, then you want more of God. (laughs) You've been listening to the teaching of Dr. Nick Gatsky here on A Better Word. Did you miss some of our previous messages in this sermon series called Perfect Power and Our Weakness from the book of 2 Corinthians? Go check out our podcast wherever you get your podcasts to download previous messages. It's hard to believe, but all the holidays are coming up here real quick. And we certainly would be grateful for a gift from you to keep this ministry going and continue on in the preaching and teaching of the gospel through the ministry of Dr. Nick Gatsky in Old North Church in Canfield, Ohio. But also, we have an idea for you. Maybe you already have this book and want to use it as a gift to somebody else in your life this season. With your gift this month to A Better Word, we have Corey Ten Boom's classic, The Hiding Place. Again, Corey Ten Boom's The Hiding Place could be yours with a gift this month to A Better Word. Maybe you could pass it along to somebody else who needs to hear a story just like that. Get your gift in today at abetterword.org. That's abetterword.org. A Better Word is a teaching ministry of and is sponsored by Old North Church of Canfield, Ohio.